Our scripture reading for today is Nehemiah 3, verses 1 through 32. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Banna, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joida, the son of Peseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besodia, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Malatia, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maronathite, the men of Gibeon and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Aziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashub, the son of Pehath Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall, as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhoza, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it, and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rehum, the son of Bani. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Azar, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maseah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section, from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Palau, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parash, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. 
After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants, opposite the muster gate, into the upper chamber of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Yeah, that was legit. That was... We started Nehemiah. I was like, I don't know who's going to get this chapter, but great job. Great job, Sarah. Um, how many of you like the end credits at the end of movies? How many of you love those? Right? No one's raising their hand right now. But yet, y'all know, right, like when the last Marvel movie you watched, right, you, you stuck it out because you knew there was another scene coming, and you're just like sitting there. And, and then you also would see people like walking out, guys, wait, wait, there's something coming, right? And you'd sit there and the music would be going and then you'd be like, you know, trying to finish up whatever you got. And then all of a sudden the scene would come on for 20 seconds and you'd be like, well, that was worth it, you know? Um, this list of names, it, it almost feels like an end credits, right? But there's no like, like magic scene in which we're going to learn something new. And it's almost like, what are we to do with this? And, you know, we've, we've been in this series for a few weeks now. We've been saying that the, the, the big idea is this, that the scriptures from cover to cover are about this great God who's in this great project of redemption, of restoring all that's been lost because of sin. And we've been looking in to this book of Nehemiah in which there's this, this people of God called by grace to live out the purposes of God in their time for God's glory. And in one way or another, we've just been asking the question, this group in the 5th century B.C., as they're trying to work out God's purposes, what might we learn from them as we seek to be a community called by grace, rescued by this great news of what this God has done for us, and then live it out in our day? And actually, this passage, the reason why I wasn't like, oh, we'll just read a few verses and we'll be done here, because this passage is actually very practical and yet very deep and profound. And here's what it says. This great project of redemption takes everyone. God wants all of his people to participate in this great project of redemption. In other words, this list of names that you just heard read is actually inviting you to be a part of God's work in this day. So I want to see three things this morning. We're looking at the, at the diversity of this community. Secondly, the unity of this community. And lastly, we're going to see a tribute to this community. So let me pray and we'll, we'll step in. Father, we are grateful for your word, knowing that every part of it is there for a purpose, to equip us, to, to let us know who we are and what we're called to and who you are, and we, we pray even now, this list of names, you would shape us, you would mold us to be your people in this day, and so we ask you for your help in this time. Amen. Well, let's begin with diversity. You know, it, it's interesting, 
Uh, by the way, I'm going to read some of these verses, and I'm going to do a horrible job with some of these names. So we'll just continue to have huge props for uh, Sarah over there, and you can just have a lower view of me, which is fine. But look at verses 1 and 2, because there's great diversity. It begins this way. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it, set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zucker, the son of Imri, built. Um, right away, right off the bat, we see clergy and laity working side by side. It begins with the high priest and his family and their priests. It's, it's people who are vocationally in ministry. And then right next to them are men of Jericho, men who have traveled approximately 26 miles to be a part of this great project, and they're just ordinary dudes. And yet there they are working side by side. This list includes primarily men, but we also see women. Uh, in verse 12, some daughters get called into the work. It says this, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. We see men and women working side by side in this great project of redemption. And we also see different social classes. Uh, mixed throughout this list, there's eight sets of rulers and leaders. You know, these are the ones that are in charge of things. They're, in one sense, calling the shots, making decisions. And yet, they're working alongside others who are in lower positions, but nonetheless working side by side um, in various trades. We, we saw in the list perfumers and goldsmiths. And what we see here is this list is showing everyone getting involved in the project. No one's left to the side. No one's on the sidelines. Well, except, did you catch it? Verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says this, and next to Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. It's really incredible, this list that's just commending and commending and commending, all of a sudden, just in the middle, actually at the very beginning, Nehemiah records a certain set of nobles. And notice what he says. He, he doesn't say, would not stoop to serve others. He says, would not stoop to serve their Lord. That's, that's the name of God, this covenant-keeping God. Nehemiah is, is throughout this passage, he's trying to show that this great project of redemption takes all kinds of people. Actually, it calls everybody who worships this God to join in. And you know, later on in the New Testament, we get a further glimpse of what this looks like. Paul would write the church at Corinth, and listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. But that the last verse Notice what it says, to each is given a gift. And that means if you're a Christian, if you put your trust and faith in Jesus, you have been given a gift, every one of you. And it's the gift, check this, it, it's the one he gave you. It's by grace. So, so, by, so by the way, no comparing. 
You have the gift or the gifts you, he gave you. <clears throat> but then secondly, notice what it's for. It says it's for the common good. So check this. It's, it's, it's not for you. It's actually for others. You know, Paul and other passages like Romans and Ephesians, you know, there's a list of these gifts. There's things like kind of three categories you could think about. One is more word-driven or speaking, and that's knowledge, evangelism, teaching, exhortation. Other times it's leading. It's, it's gifts of government or administration. Other ways it's just serving. It's, it's helps and it's mercy and it's hospitality. And Paul is saying here in the church, everyone gets to be a part. You've all been given a gift. We're all a part of seeing this great project of redemption move forward. Tim Keller summarizes it so well. He, he writes this. If God in his providence has drawn you together with a hundred people to be a church, then you are not there by accident. You have a gift needed. You have certain people whom you can speak to. You have certain hands you can hold because of your past experiences. You have certain hearts you can reach. There are certain people to whom you can be a prophet, a priest, and a king. There are certain ways you can build up the people of God, and you would not be there unless God wants to use your gift in that community. Unless all the gifts are used, the community cannot do the work God has given it to do. You know, this past week, honestly, you know, it's like as exciting as like a whole chapter of names. Um, it's been refreshing for me personally just to reflect over the last seven plus years honestly, of what God has done in the midst of Redeemer City. So grateful. So grateful for the men and the women who were there in a living room, like with 14 of us. Just incredible. So grateful for even thinking, like saying up this morning, and it's like, you know, Dave, Peter, Philip in the back doing their tech thing, you know, people doing their thing. You got people in the, like helping kids in the back. And by the way, it's not just that. Like this isn't, this is not a Sunday thing, right? Like there's a dynamic, right, where I know there are people out there who I, I've got, I've had conversations where there are friends around in neighborhoods and apartment complexes of just relationships and friendships built with people who are hurting and needing hope and stepping into those relationships. Like, just think for a moment, renewing our seed through the gospel, think about how that takes everyone. And see, one of my hopes, you know, in this, in this section is to encourage you. I hope you walk away encouraged. Like there are a list of names. I give you the list of names at Redeemer City. I'm just incredibly grateful for. And the other side of it, too, there's another hope in which, like, some of you, right, who are unengaged, and this could be for a variety of reasons. Like, some of you, you're unengaged because you think you have nothing to offer. And let me just say this. Like, chapter, verse, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, you've got a gift. God's given you a gift to serve. Like, you have something to offer, 
Or even check this, like in verse 8, one of my favorite verses of the whole chapter, it says, perfumers were doing this part of the wall. Do you think perfumers have any idea what to do with a wall? Right? They don't have any clue, but they're just there. There's a need. I'm going to step in. I mean, in one way or another, like, even if you don't know how you fit in, like, it doesn't mean you can't participate. And the other side of it, too, like, others of you, I mean, this has been a, you know, the pandemic's been really hard. A lot of people have just been disengaged from a local church. And it, it can feel kind of clunky stepping back in, or you're just trying to figure things out. But here'd be my encouragement for you. If you're not engaged meaningfully in a local church, then get engaged meaningfully. And it doesn't have to necessarily be this one. I'm not saying it has to be this one, but engage. And here's why, because Paul would say this, and we see this in chapter 3, that that community cannot be what it will be unless you're engaged. Unless it has your gifts and your experiences. Nehemiah 3 is showing how it takes all of God's people, all of his people, to be a part of this great project of redemption. It's very diverse. Secondly, I want you to see the unity. Listen to to verse 4 and the repetition here. It says this, And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Barakai, son of Meshezabel. See, Sarah, help me out. Repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And by the way, if we kept going, verse 5 says, and next to them. There, there is this repetition across it. In fact, you know, chapter 3 actually goes around the wall counterclockwise until it, gets, it starts at Sheep Gate and goes all the way back to Sheep Gate. And it's just, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them. It's this, this imagery of unity in the midst of great diversity. And this is a pointer. You know, this is a pointer to where Paul would say in Ephesians that there is one body. There's one body. And, and, and here's what that means. It means this body is united in purpose and identity. So just think for a moment. I want you to, if you're a Christian, I want you to understand this. You have a new identity. You have a new family that actually connects you to others that you would normally have no connection to. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's one of the great preachers of the last century. He was originally a doctor, and in his profession, he was actually, like, very high up. He was working as an assistant to a physician who was the physician, the lead physician to the royal family. And this is, again, in England, so it's a very stratified society, right? And so basically, Lloyd-Jones, I mean, he had his career set. And then he became a Christian. And he knew he could have remained a doctor, but he felt this calling to vocational ministry. And so he left that left that calling for a doctor and became a pastor. And one of his first pastors, maybe his first, was at a small Welsh village of Port Talbot. And it was a fishing village. 
And there he was around individuals that were many rungs beneath his education below it. Uh, his different ethnicity had different social backgrounds, um, different experiences, different level of education. And yet, when he got there, he began to serve there. He began to recognize that he had more in common with them than he had with those who were not Christian, who were of the same ethnicity, same class, same education experience. And it was because of the gospel. Listen, if this is one of the evidences that you've experienced the grace of Jesus, is that when you get around a community, and again, this can look many different ways, but you get around other people who have experienced the grace and mercy and kindness of Christ, and you're across the room from them, and though you would have nothing to do with them, all of a sudden you're there because of Jesus, and you say, there's something here. We have something in common. It goes deeper. And that means, listen, if the gospel's working in you and transforming you, it means your primary identity is not your vocation. It's not whether you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. That's not that it's insignificant. But there's a deeper identity. Or even think about ethnicity. Not that that's unimportant. It's important. But because of Christ, you have more in common with those who are in Christ. It's primary. And this community on mission in the fifth century and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, found nobles and laity and men and women working side by side, laboring for the glory of this God, working out this great project of redemption because they had a common identity and a common purpose. And today, because of the gospel, that's what the church has, a common identity. No matter your race, class, no matter your educational background, low or high, young or old, because of the work of Christ, we are a new family. So diversity of this community, unity of this community, but then thirdly, there's a tribute to this community. Uh, let me ask you this, who, who would you like to be honored by? Who, if they got up and mentioned your name and what you have done, would mean the world to you? A while back, uh, I was reading this book, The Warmth of Other Suns, and it's a book about the great migration from the south to the north of African Americans leaving the south under Jim Crow laws. And it's not only a book on statistics, it actually follows three stories of three African Americans. And one of them is a man named Robert Foster. And he moved out to California, and he was a doctor. He had all the credentials, and he had to start from the very bottom because of his race. And yet he built this incredible practice. And one day, in walked to his, his practice a woman, and he, he, he helped her significantly. And it happened to be Ray Charles' wife. You all know Ray Charles, right? Well, because of that, 
Dr. Foster actually became the personal physician of Ray Charles. If you know anything about Ray Charles, you know he had quite a drug addiction. And at one point, he was high, he had, one, had an episode, he cut his hand so bad, there was questions of whether or not he would ever be able to play again. And this was, again, in the middle of his career. Like, would he make it? And he didn't go to the emergency room. He called up Dr. Foster. Dr. Foster met him, because of his skill, repaired his hand. And because of that, Ray Charles continued to play. Ray Charles was so grateful. I mean, Ray, I mean, this doctor delivered some of his kids, all this stuff. Ray Charles was so grateful that one of the songs, he names Dr. Foster. He names him in a song. It's a tribute. Now, why do I share that with you? Because, listen, we all know what it's like when someone that matters names you. Right? Like for some of us, it might be a wife praising a husband or vice versa. Or it might be a daughter praising a mother. Or for others, it might be a student honoring a teacher. Or the MVP of a league honoring his teammates. We all know what it's like when we see that. And some of us know what it's like to be in that position. And right here, do you not see what's happened in chapter 3? Why are these names here? Like, one of the doctrines of Scripture is that it is, Second Timothy says it's, it's God-breathed. It means there's, it means it's not just human authors, it's God-inspiring, God-breathing this text to us. And here's what that means. The great king and creator of this universe took note of these people. He took note of their participation in the great project of redemption. And listen, do you, do you know what that means today? It means in our day, as a people of God called by grace through this gospel, do you know he sees you? Do you know that he knows your name? That your contribution is not unknown? Think for a moment, Jesus in Matthew 10, listen to what he says. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Isn't that incredible? That that means whatever your contribution to this great project of redemption, He sees you. He knows you. And our response is this. It's simply to be faithful stewards of the gifts, experiences that He's given us and to use them in stewardship to this great King and Creator who's in this great project of redemption. And please remember that, you know, this serving, it, it's not so he'll love us more. Let's go back for a moment to this gospel, remind ourselves. Um, when Jesus came, what did he say? 
I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for money. In, in, in other words, he already loves you. He's loved you enough to die for you. He loves you. He doesn't love you more because you serve him. In other words, it's just a grateful response to a great king who's rescued you by his grace and now somehow, somehow is working out his purposes in this world through your life and my life and our life. Isn't that incredible? Like, just think, sit there for a moment. Like, this matters. Do you understand this matters? There is an end scene credit that's coming at the end of all days. And he knows your name. This great project of redemption doesn't just take some people. It takes the entirety of God's people. You want in? You're in the story. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for uh, these reminders. In a world that is uh, confusing, discouraging at times, uh, when, when it's not easy to get up on Monday morning, uh, whatever it might be, Lord, we are grateful that you know us. We're grateful that in the midst of this city, you've called us to be a people, to be your people. And we would ask you for your help and your assistance, Lord, so that everyone here, in one way or another, you'd use our collective lives so others might see and grasp what you have done in the person and work of Jesus. And so we give it to you, and we ask you for your help and for your Spirit's work in our midst. Amen.